listeners, welcome to the St. Andrew's CMR podcast. This podcast is in collaboration with students and staff at the University of St. Andrews. At the Center for Minorities Research, we explore the complexities, challenges, and opportunities, continuities and discontinuities, unity and rupture of the everyday lives of minorities in Scotland and beyond. Hi there, my name is Amy and welcome to my contribution to the CMR St Andrews podcast season 2. I hope you're all doing well. Today I'm going to talk about the place of minority languages in Germany, specifically mixed codes with a special focus on the variety spoken by people of Turkish descent in urban German areas. Towards the end of the podcast we're also going to look more broadly at the complicated relationship between German society and mixed codes. I'm a student of German and I'm utterly fascinated by social and political attitudes in Germany towards these varieties and by the amazing linguistic changes which are taking place literally as we speak. I'm going to break the discussion today into three parts, some history, a description of the varieties themselves and then lastly the response to these new ways of speaking. Just a quick note, a lot of the research I'm going to touch on was originally written in German so I've translated some passages that I'm going to quote from today just for ease so that we can all understand what's going on. So with that, let's get started. All right, so when we think about Turkish migration to Germany, the first thing that we tend to think about um, is this labor migration that happened in the 1950s. And the people that came at that point, we call them die Gastarbeiter, and we're going to get into them a little bit later on. But these people were absolutely not the first Turkish people to live in Germany. So the earliest records that we have of Turkish people in Germany date all the way back to the 12th century, um, when European Christian armies brought Turkish people to Western Europe during the Crusades as prisoners of war. But then in the 16th century, we see the Ottoman Turks trying to expand their empire into Western and also Central Europe. Um, and they did this by conducting two sieges of the Austrian city Vienna, so the capital city, the first one in 1529 and the second one then in 1683. So both sieges were unsuccessful, but after the second siege, we see a lot of Turkish soldiers settling in what's now southern Germany, and then plenty of them converted to Christianity and became traders, professionals, and some even became priests. So this conflict that we have between the Ottoman Empire and these armies of Europe that we call the Holy League led to a series of battles which we now call the Great Turkish War, and that happened between 1683 and 1699. And during suffered a lot of defeats and it lost a lot of territory and as a result of this many 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 Turkish people were again taken to Europe and Germany as prisoners of war. But then in the 1700s we get some better relations between the Ottoman Turks and the German Empire so lots of Turkish soldiers actually came to these kind of Germanic lands to serve the Prussian kings and then in the 1800s, we get an active encouragement of movement between Prussian and Ottoman territories because we've got trading treaties signed between the two empires. And this meant that we get Turkish communities in Germany, so what's now Berlin, and we also get German communities in what's now Istanbul. So jumping forward then to the 20th century, we see Germany divided up and occupied by Allied forces in the aftermath of the Second World War. So we've got French, British and American troops in the West, and we've got Soviet forces in the East. So even the capital city Berlin, which lay in the Soviet-controlled East, was split into Eastern and Western zones. In the West, the American government invested really heavily uh, into, into this new federal republic. So we've got schemes like the Marshall Plan, which caused a really big economic boom in the late 40s and 50s. 
And this sudden wealth and prosperity created lots of job opportunities, which then attracted lots of workers from East Germany. But the construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961 stopped people from moving between East and West. So it stopped these workers from the East from coming in and working in the factories in the West. And this led to a massive uh, labour crisis in the West. So to combat this, the government in the West of Germany, they signed agreements with several European and Near Eastern countries, officially inviting their citizens to come and work in Germany. And the agreement that was signed with Turkey was actually signed really early on in this process in 1961. And I think it's quite important to mention here that this migration was seen as temporary by both the Federal Republic, who sanctioned it, and also by the people of Turkey who came to work um, in the West of Germany. So because of this temporary status, they became known as die Gastarbeiter, which means guest workers. However, in 1974, the workers' families were given the right to come and settle in Germany. And as a result, the number of Turkish guest workers or Gastarbeiter in the Federal Republic nearly doubled between 1974 and 1988. So the Berlin Wall then, it fell in 1989 and this was a really important time in Germany, this reunification period, because lots of people celebrated this, you know, the birth of a new state. But this was quite a difficult time to be Turkish in Germany. Um, you know, we've got questions about what it meant to be German and the place of, of immigrants in this new unified state, leading to instances of ethnic violence, particularly against the Turkish community. And sadly, this anti-immigrant rhetoric was particularly strong in the former East. But despite these challenges in Germany, it was quite difficult for many of the Turkish workers um, and their families to return home because of a military coup that was happening in Turkey at the time. So many of them actually stayed. So today, Turkish people form the largest ethnic minority in Germany, and they're also the biggest population in the Turkish diaspora. And as a result, Turkish is the second most spoken language in Germany. But what I'm quite interested in in this podcast is how the Turkish and German languages interact with each other. And more importantly, how are these interactions received by German society? Okay, so let's start by tackling the first part of this question. What happens when Turkish and German come into contact with each other? To get to the bottom of this, we're going to have to take a look at the concept of mixed codes. Mixed codes are formed when people combine two or more languages or language varieties when they speak. You maybe heard this described as code switching before. This is a little bit controversial because some linguists use code mixing and code switching interchangeably. And then others say that code switching is just the act of moving between languages. So to keep things simple today, I'm just going to stick to the terms mixed code and code mixing. And we're just going to leave code switching off to one side. So mixed codes consist of two major parts. The first part is the matrix language and the matrix language acts like a base language. Um, it provides the grammatical rules which are going to control how sentences are constructed and how words need to change depending on grammatical factors like case and gender. The second part then is insertions and insertions are words um, that we take from one language or variety and embed or stick into the matrix language. So we're going to take an example now to demonstrate this interaction between um, a matrix language and insertions. And we're going to do this using two varieties of English. So here's our sentence. Sarah dropped trash on the kitchen floor in our flat. Okay, so can you tell what the two varieties are? Let's, uh, let's break it down here. So we've got British English, or the English that we use in the UK, um, being used to simulate the matrix language, while the word trash, which is more commonly used in America, is the insertion. So if we eliminate the code mixing, we're going to end up with the sentence in, in a kind of British variety. Sarah dropped rubbish on the kitchen floor in our flat. 
Or alternatively, we could flip this on its head and say that American English is the matrix language and the word flat here is the insertion. And in this case, to get rid of the code mixing, we might end up with Sarah dropped trash on the kitchen floor in our dorm. So we can see that this example is a lot tamer than what's going on in Turkish German mixed codes, but it's just good to show us um, how elements of one language can be borrowed and stuck into another, which is the core idea of code mixing. So just to make things even more complicated, linguists like to split insertions into two categories and they call them cultural borrowing forms and core borrowing forms. So cultural borrowing forms are insertions that are stuck into the matrix language which don't have a near or exact equivalent in the matrix language. So words like fraternity and sorority are really good examples of how this works. Over here in the UK, there's not really a concept of fraternity or sorority. Um, we don't really talk about that too much over here. So if we wanted to talk about this, we'd have to borrow vocabulary from speakers in the US. And you can kind of look at this as filling gaps in the matrix language. On the other hand, then, core borrowing forms is defined as insertions which serve no lexical purpose, meaning that a near or exact equivalent does actually exist in the matrix language. So if we Think back to our example, um, Sarah dropped trash on the kitchen floor. We know that the concept trash exists in our kind of makeshift matrix language as rubbish. And because a similar word exists in both varieties, no holes are being filled in our matrix language. So these insertions don't really have um, a purpose. Okay, so now that we're a little bit more familiar with the constituent parts of a mixed code, let's talk about what we need in order to develop one. So one of the most important conditions to develop a mixed code is, of course, a fitting audience. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit and I'm going to introduce you to two of my favourite studies. We've got Bazaar Language in Turkey and Germany, and you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation, but that one's by Tahir Balci. And then the second one, German-Turkish mixed code in a group of female immigrants, form of a use language or characteristics of a sociolect. And that one is by Sindark and Kaim. Sounds absolutely thrilling, I know, but if you're at all interested in this topic, um, I would recommend these two studies. They're really great reading. So when I'm talking about bazaar language, I'm referring to the linguistic phenomenon which Belchi recorded at the bazaars or weekly markets in Berlin, Germany and Adana, Turkey. But his findings were actually pretty bizarre as well. So Balti found that traders in the German markets in areas with a large immigrant population advertised their wares using mixed codes, so primarily mixtures of German and Turkish, but also others involving Arabic and Serbian. In contrast then, he found that at the markets in Adana, traders typically spoke only in Turkish. So he found that there were lots of Syrian traders at these markets, but not many Syrian customers. So it wouldn't have been um, very useful to these traders to speak in a, in a Turkish Arabic mixed code because there was no one there to understand it. So this is kind of giving us an idea that, you know, in order to speak in a mixed code, we, we would quite like to have someone there who's able to understand it with us. And when we don't have that, we don't tend to develop one. So the other study I mentioned then by Sindark and Kaim kind of suggests something similar. So their research focuses on a group of teenage girls in Mannheim, Germany, who called themselves the Power Girls. And I, I just love that name. I think it's really fantastic. It gives me a little giggle every time. Um, but when they gave an initial description of the girls, Sindark and Kaim wrote that the majority of participants in the study were of Turkish descent and aged between 15 and 22. But crucially, they also mentioned that in the girls' neighbourhood, more than 60% of the inhabitants were not of German descent. 
So just like at the bazaars, we can imagine that the sophisticated mixed code that the power girls ended up using would not have developed in a monocultural or monolingual environment because the demand for them just wouldn't have existed. But there's another piece of interesting, um, something else that we can pull out from this study that's quite interesting, I think. So the right audience isn't just important for allowing a mixed code to develop, but it also kind of dictates where it can be spoken. So the Power Girls and another group of teenagers, which were surveyed in um, 2019, who we're going to touch on later, uh, reported that they only used mixed code when they were speaking to their peers and that they preferred to use standard German to talk to adults and, and especially people outside of their own communities or people in professional roles. So as we can see, the right audience is important in allowing a mixed code to first develop, but then it also controls where it can be practiced. Okay, so it's time for me to nerd out a little bit again, um, and we're going to get to the nitty gritty of what's really going on in these mixed codes. So let's talk linguistics. One really cool thing that Sindark and Kaim noticed about the Power Girls mixed code was that it varied from speaker to speaker, especially in terms of linking words and question tags. In English, we use linking words like also, then, and so. Um, I've used them a million times in this podcast already, and you're probably going to notice some every time I do them from now on. Um, but we also use the question tags, you know, and isn't it a lot of the time without thinking about it. Counterintuitively, the speakers who use more German in their mixed code use Turkish linking words and question tags, while speakers who had a greater proportion of Turkish used German ones. The study also found that the Power Girls' use of mixed code was very fluent, but would sometimes be interrupted by formulation issues or unknown vocabulary. In speakers with a higher proportion of Turkish in the mixed code, these issues tended to occur in German and then vice versa. But across the board, the researchers found that the most grammatical irregularities were actually in the Turkish elements. And I think that this raises a really interesting question about bilingualism and, and what it means to be bilingual. So for someone who was raised monolingually like I was, it's quite easy to view bilingual people as equally fluent in both languages. However, this is rarely the case in reality. And this is something that the researchers found with the Power Girls as well. So something that I think is really interesting is that the Power Girls made a distinction between the Turkish they spoke at home with their families and the Turkish that they experienced in Turkey. So they reported that they were able to communicate without any issues at home, but that they found it quite difficult to speak Turkish in Turkey without using a mixed code because they lacked vocabulary. And this also extended to difficulties with comprehension. Although most of the girls grew up in Turkish-speaking environments, they wouldn't necessarily have had the same contact with a wide variety of vocabulary like they would have in German, just through being exposed to lots of different scenarios in Germany outside of the home life situation. So growing up outside of Turkey may also have meant that the girls are missing vocabulary relating to things specific to that country, much like English speakers outside of the US wouldn't necessarily know what fraternities and sororities are because these concepts don't really exist in other English-speaking cultures. But there might actually be another factor which contributes to the girls' lack of fluency. The researchers described the German that the girls spoke as near standard and grammatically normal, but they found lots of grammatical errors in Turkish portions like we've mentioned. One of the mistakes that came up the most frequently was putting the verb in the second position, like you would in German, rather than at the end, like you should do in Turkish. The girls were really quick to pick up on mistakes that they made in German, but they didn't correct themselves or each other when they made mistakes in Turkish. It's a bit ambiguous whether the girls just weren't noticing the mistakes or choosing to ignore them, but either way, this probably contributed 
to the difficulties they faced with Turkish in Turkey, either in understanding people speaking standard Turkish without these irregularities, or simply in making themselves understood. One of the coolest things about mixed codes is that they contain new forms which don't exist in the matrix language or the language that the insertions are being pulled from. My favourite example that Sindark and Kaim found in the Power Girls mixed code was the doubled plural. So the researchers discovered that the Power Girls would consistently build plurals using a combination of the German plural and then adding a Turkish plural suffix. So, for example, to say pictures, the Power Girls would start off with the German plural Bilder and then add the Turkish suffix lar, forming the double plural Bilderlar. Yes, both of these elements exist independently in Turkish and German respectively, but this Franken form is something totally new, which I think is really exciting. Okay, so I think it's time to address the elephant in the room. Up to now, you might have been wondering why speakers of mixed codes choose to use core borrowing insertions when a word with the same idea exists in the matrix language. When the German insertions identified in Turkish portions of the power girl's speech was categorised into cultural and core borrowing forms, it was found that only 8% were categorised as cultural borrowing forms. So, if 92% of the insertions had a Turkish equivalent, why did the power girls choose to swap languages at these points? So, research by Myers-Scotten suggests that speakers will use core borrowing forms in order to identify themselves with the culture of the embedded language. So core borrowing forms are used to establish an identity. Many studies have concluded that mixed codes are used as a means of social expression, allowing the formation of subcultures outside of the social majority and enabling speakers to express both their local identity or perceived cultural identity, as well as their socioeconomic condition. So to find out more about this, we need to take a look at the social status of mixed codes and their speakers in Germany, which we're going to do right now. The relationship between wider German society and mixed codes is quite a complicated one, so I'm going to break my analysis down into four parts. We're going to start off by looking at the outgroup perception of mixed codes and register awareness of mixed code speakers. Then we'll move on to how the in-group views mixed codes and register awareness. After that, we'll take a look at language policy in Germany. And finally, we'll finish off with the question, are mixed codes youth languages or are they sociolects? So I know I've just thrown a lot of terminology at you all, so let's do a few definitions right now. So in sociology, the in-group is defined as any group or category to which an individual belongs, which fosters a deep sense of loyalty and identity. So for our purposes, the in-group refers to the people who speak mixed code, while the out-group is made up of people who don't. Register, then, is the type of language that we use in different situations. For example, you might use a different register of language when talking to your boss than the one that you use speaking to your friends. Okay, so mixed codes and their reception in Germany have been a really interesting subject for researchers for a really long time, and studies generally tend to indicate quite a negative attitude towards them. One particular trend in the outgroup is the belief that speakers of mixed codes, particularly Kietzdeutsch, which is spoken in um, central Berlin, can't differentiate between this formal register, which they might speak formal German or standard German, and informal registers in which they might speak in mixed code. This effectively assumes that speakers of mixed codes are only capable of speaking in that mixed code, and this is called a monorepertoire. The validity of that assumption is something that we're going to dive into when we look at the in-group. However, it's clear to see that this kind of belief is assuming a lack of education in communities which speak in mixed code. All right, I have another study at my sleeve which is examining this phenomenon in greater detail, and it was conducted in 2019 by Bunk and Pola. 
So this study found that while their cohort of outgroup adults didn't always assume that speakers of Keats Deutsch had a mono repertoire, Keats Deutsch was viewed quite negatively. So one adult in the outgroup actually referred to it as a ghetto language um, and then called standard German something normal. They also found that adults tended to use um, or view the use of Keats Deutsch as a consequence of a lack of education. And the adults consistently stated that the ability to choose whether to speak in standard German or Keats Deutsch is not an ability that every speaker possesses, but is actually related to education. So they said that more educated speakers were capable of evaluating the situations in which they find themselves quote-unquote correctly, hence preventing them from using the wrong register. Yet another study conducted in 2007 by the man who I believe has the best name on the planet, Yanis Andertsopoulos, suggests that the media may be at least partially to blame for these negative perceptions. So According to him, Keats Deutsch is a multi-ethnolite, meaning that it's a language variant which contains influences from many different languages. The media tends to present multi-ethnolites as broken or inferior versions of a majority language, which are the result of language decay. And as a result, speakers of mixed codes and other language variants are often seen as spreading quote-unquote incorrect German. And this idea contributes then to the, the belief that we talked about earlier that speakers of mixed codes and people from these communities lack education. And interestingly, some of these negative views are actually reflected by members of the in-group. So Sindark and Kaim's original study of the Power Girls in Mannheim found that the girls tended to use standard German when speaking about work or professional life or when quoting or even telling stories involving people of what Sindark and Kaim call a higher social status. They also interviewed a group of older women, also of migrant heritage between 25 and 35, and all of these women were described as professionals or academics. Um, so they reported that they actually wouldn't use mixed code, especially in public spaces, so as not to be labelled as um, what Sindak and Kaim call of migrant background. While these young professionals did admit to continuing to use mixed codes at home, their rejection of mixed codes in public or professional spaces suggests a fear of judgment. Um, for using it. If we come back now to Bunk and Pola, um, they also found that young speakers of Keats Deutsch often agreed with these negative stereotypes that are being presented by outgroup adults. And a 2015 study by Madsen and Svensson goes as far as suggesting that teenage speakers of Keats Deutsch and other multi-ethnolites actually replicate these stereotypes as part of the identity building process. I'd like to take a bit of a deeper dive into Bunk and Pola's research because I think it's really interesting. So this paper was based on an experiment in which the participants were played multiple recordings of people speaking in standard German or Keatsdeutsch and were then asked to describe the person that they heard speaking. The teenagers in the in-group were really quick to bring up the question of nationality or being German in response to the recordings, commenting that the speakers recorded in Keatsdeutsch weren't actually German, but rather of Turkish, Arabic or Mediterranean descent. And I'd like to bring your attention to one quote from the paper. So I've translated this from the original German and it reads, she was maybe born here or has lived here for like 10 years or so, but she's not a German. And that was what one of the in-group teenagers said in response to a recording of someone speaking Keats Deutsch. This sense of being an outsider is then mirrored in the tendency of the in-group participants to refer to themselves as Ausländer, which means foreigners. And I think that this suggests that for this group of teenagers at least, being German isn't a question of where you live or even where you were born, but it's rather a matter of blood. 
But nationality and cultural heritage weren't the only things that the teenagers commented on. Many were very quick to connect Kiezdeutsch with low income and low educational status. Not only did some refer to the recorded Kiezdeutsch speakers as asozial, which means something kind of like delinquents, but they also stressed that even people with a German cultural background could be speakers of Kiezdeutsch, given the correct convergence of socioeconomic factors. So, in essence, the teenagers identified speakers of Kiezdeutsch as people with a cultural background other than German, most often Turkish, Arab or Mediterranean, who tended to come from low-income households with limited educational success, or people of German heritage who met the second set of conditions. Alright, so, let's come back to the question of a mono-repertoire in speakers of Kiezdeutsch. Bunk and Pola found that the teenagers they surveyed were very aware of register and made clear distinctions between environments in which they would use Kiezdeutsch or standard German. Mixed code was restricted to in-group communications among teenage speakers of Kiezdeutsch, while standard German was used in interactions with the out-group, particularly adults or people of authority, in order to show politeness. However, like the older participants questioned by Sindark and Keim, Bunk and Pola's in-group adolescents believed that speaking what they described as good standard German was synonymous with a high level of education and success. The importance of standard German is actually reflected in German immigration policy as well. So another really amazing paper written by Tanager in 2019 explores this relationship by looking at integration courses for prospective citizens in Germany. So as you can imagine, obtaining German citizenship is a pretty complicated process. And while it's now possible for people born outside of Germany to get their hands on a German passport, there are many bureaucratic hoops that need to be jumped through, like having been resident in Germany for at least eight years, or attending an integration course if you haven't lived in Germany for that long, and also being able to speak German to be one standard according to the Common European Framework for Languages. So integration courses consist of two parts. The first part is approximately 600 hours of language lessons and the second part is 60 hours of civics or orientation classes and both components are examined at the end of the course. Integration courses then are the brainchild of the Federal Office for Migration and Refugees in Germany which in German gets abbreviated to BAMF and BAMF outlines this idea in the document concept for a nationwide integration course which then just gets shortened to the concept document. So, as stated in the concept, Banff views language learning as a key step in the process of achieving integration, um, and in some cases it takes us even further. So, the Staatsangehörigkeitsgesetz of 2000, which we're just going to call STAG, actually names sufficient knowledge of German as a requirement for immigrants who hope to become German citizens. And the logic behind this is to equip new citizens with the language skills to conduct their day-to-day -day activities in German. However, Tanager's research suggests that this requirement for German language skills is actually not consistent with the lived realities of the students on the integration course. All of the students that she interviewed reported not needing to use German in their daily activities. So, for example, while the vast majority of students said that they were learning German and able to communicate at work, they also said that they didn't actually need to use German at work. So this is quite um, a strange paradox that we've got going on. So similarly then, upon completing the course, they reported that they were still unable to complete the tasks in German, which they had struggled to do before enrolling. So while they said that knowledge of German was helpful, they didn't really say that it was vital, like the Staatsangehörigkeitsgesetz suggests. Tanager then goes on to label German integration policy as a language policy, or a practical plan to modify language practices and beliefs. So this 
this does sound quite scary, um, but I think it's quite important to mention that language policies can be really positive forces. So, for example, in Ireland, where I'm from, legislation has been in place since 1922, making it compulsory for the Irish language to be taught in schools in order to preserve it. So this is a language policy, but it's been used for the really positive aim of preventing um, a heritage language from, from dying out and becoming extinct. However, having said this, language policies can also be used to achieve national goals and define the rights of individuals or groups. And it could be said that laws like STAG are doing this by requiring that individuals have what they define to be sufficient knowledge of German in order to receive a German passport and the rights which come with it. But again, it's really important to remember that this requirement to prove your language skills in order to become a citizen isn't something that's unique to Germany. It happens in a lot of countries all around the world, including the UK. But what's really interesting is that Tanager found a really strong link between the students' view of German culture and the language that they were learning. So I'm going to quote her here. Um, she interviewed a lot of students and she wrote that the students perceived of the German language like a window into the German soul and that the language itself held components of the culture within it. And she notes then that students also consistently spoke about the Germans as a single unit from which they were excluding themselves, despite the fact that many of them were participating in the course in order to obtain citizenship and in effect become German. So I think we can see that this idea of Germanness is intrinsically linked to the language, specifically the standard German which the students were learning in class is not quite airtight. So for one thing, it seems to suggest that the more linguistically capable you are, the more you'll understand how the Germans tick and the better you'll fit in or become integrated. As well, it creates quite an exclusive sense of who the German people are, effectively just people who speak standard German. And we've already seen that there are a lot of large communities and urban spaces in Germany like Berlin and Mannheim, where youth or a lot of young people um, are either born in Germany or have lived in Germany for a long time and tend to speak in mixed code. So the question is then, are they as German as their German-speaking neighbours, so their standard German-speaking neighbours? And as we've discussed, I think the in-group answer to this question is no. Because of this, it's fair to say that the divide along language lines between quote-unquote real Germans and Germans with um, what German law calls a migration background is ingrained not only in existing social structures, but also in systems designed to educate prospective systems about what it means to be German and how to live according to what Stag calls the German way of life. As Tanager puts it, and I'm going to quote her again, the courses are designed to help integrate immigrants into Germany, but this case study suggests that it instead creates a concept of being German and presents it to the participants, separating them from the Germans and hindering the very process of integration the course is designed to promote. Okay, um, I hope everyone's still awake and still with me. Um, I'm going to finish off now just by giving a quick overview of the current debate surrounding the classification of mixed codes in linguistic discourse. So are they youth languages or are they fully fledged sociolites? This question has to do with the longevity of mixed codes and as a consequence the way in which they're perceived not only by the public but also by the academic community. Are they passing fads or are they more permanent alterations at the base of a new branch of language? Youth languages are actually not the same thing as slang. Linguists define them as independent varieties or group-specific speech styles, whereas slang is simply vocabulary taken from an informal register. 
A sociolectin is a form of language that is spoken by the people in a specific social group and that was defined by the Cambridge English Dictionary. So you can see that there's quite a lot of overlap between these two terms, both depend on the presence of a group or subculture to speak them. However, the bone of contention here is that mixed codes are connected with a particular phase of life and that is of course the teenage years. Remember that the young professionals that Sindark and Kaim interviewed didn't use mixed code regularly and the use of mixed code seems to wane as young people are assimilated into the standard German dominated world of work as young professionals. And it's because of this kind of transience that many researchers believe that codes or mixed codes are better defined as use languages than sociolites. But the very fact that professional people avoid using mixed code at work due to the negative connotations of having a migration background, as Sindark and Keem's young adults reported, demonstrates that mixed code is a language associated with a specific group of people. And we can define this group of people by reminding ourselves of Bunk and Pola's research. Um, so people from low income areas with low educational status, more often than not with a non-German background. As of right now, academics haven't quite gotten to the bottom of this one, so maybe in a few years' time, when more of today's mixed-code-speaking adolescents have transitioned to adulthood, there'll be a big enough sample population to study this in greater detail. The jury's still out, but hopefully the answer is one we can look forward to in the not-so-distant future, so stay tuned! Alright guys, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and are inspired to dig a little deeper into non-standard varieties of your own language and of course the people who speak them. This podcast was made possible by the Centre for Minorities Research at the University of St Andrews and is part of a series of podcasts exploring minority issues from a really diverse range of perspectives. If you haven't already, please make sure to have a listen to the other podcasts which are available on the CMR St Andrews website. Thanks again for listening and goodbye! Thank you for listening to another episode of the CMR podcast. For more information, visit the St Andrews CMR website. Facebook, or Twitter. See you next time. Bye.